Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, professor of history at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. An army defending a multiracial democratic society has a responsibility to reflect that society and also to respect the equal rights and value of all citizens. That statement may sound self-evident, but in practice, it has been controversial, especially when it comes to the American original sin of racial discrimination. The U.S. Army has at times been a leader in the fight for racial equality. Other times, it has failed to challenge public preference for segregation and discrimination. In a recent article in Joint Forces Quarterly, two Army War College colleagues, Charles Allen and John Noggle, have considered the Army's history and race relations with their piece entitled, A More Perfect Union, Black Soldiers, and the Promise of America. In a narrative that covers more than two centuries of ups and downs, uh, Allen and Noggle offer a warts and all understanding of our past, aimed towards clearing away misconceptions to help us in the present shape the future. As they conclude their essay, quote, America would likely not exist today as a free and united country were it not for the courage and service of black soldiers throughout its history. They deserve more recognition and more gratitude for the role they have played in helping form a more perfect union, a fight that continues today, close quote. With these thoughts in mind, we are delighted here at A Better Peace to have Charles Allen and John Noggle with us today to discuss their article, The Army's History as an Agent of Racial Equality and Social Change, and the Implications of that History for the Future. Colonel, retired Charles D. Allen, uh, is currently the Professor of Leadership and Cultural Studies in the Department of Command, Leadership, and Management at the United States Army War College, while Dr. John Noggle is Associate Professor of Warfighting Studies in the Department of Military Strategy, Planning, and Operations at the U.S. Army War College. Welcome to A Better Peace, gentlemen. It's good to be here, Ron. Glad to be here. Thank you. You bet. So, Chuck, I want to start with you because I want to say what inspired uh, this particular piece and what inspired you and John to come together uh, to do the piece in Joint Forces Quarterly. Well, thank you for the introduction, Ron. I've been on the War College faculty for a number of years, and each year as we look at our history, we're trying to find connections to what our performance may be as a military, but also as an institution. And over the past number of years, I've learned to go back and look at history, to look at our people, and try to make connections to what we're trying to accomplish. A part of that has been looking at black history. And every time I open a book, read a study, listen to a podcast, I discover how much I don't know. And so my colleague, John Noggle, joined the faculty about a year and a half ago. He approached me about a passion of his, which was to study in a and, and look at the contributions of African-Americans in our military. And it's been a great start thus far. We've come together. We've learned a lot from each other. And the first outcome has been that article in Joint Force Quarterly. 
Great. And, and John, so you, you brought this, uh, you brought an interest into this subject with you to the war college, if you will. And so what, what was your inspiration when you approached Chuck about working together on this project? I was struck by what happened at Charlottesville. And I'm, I'm a half a generation younger than Chuck. I, I, I was born during, during this civil rights era of the 1960, but didn't live through it. And really Charlottesville was for me, despite the fact that it happened in my late forties, early fifties, was sort of my awakening to uh, the the fight for racial justice on a uh, on a, a personal level, and and so I, I started studying Charlottesville and the fight over the monuments to the Confederacy, and that led me to the Equal Justice Initiative, a, a, a really fantastic. A compilation of the history of Black Americans and of the suffering uh, they they experienced during Jim Crow and and uh, the, the long term effects of racism on American society, and and as I continued to learn more and more about what what has been called America's original sin, I started to wonder if I could help heal that in some small way. And, and I'm a military historian. I'm a student of, of military strategy, of American military history. And I thought perhaps if I could help more Americans understand the role that black soldiers have played in creating America and preserving America, that that would be helpful. And, and, and what I learned was that they had suffered horribly of racism during their service in, in the American military, even before there was an America, but had persevered nonetheless and, and fought for a better future for themselves and for their countrymen. And, and so if I could tell that story more broadly, um, I, I wanted to do it. And I have long known and admired Chuck Allen, and I thought I needed a, a, a partner in this endeavor. And, and so I, I approached Chuck with the idea, and I wore him down, ultimately, because uh, he was not uh, immediately convinced, I don't think, that it was a terrific idea, but, but it's starting to pay off. And are you both currently uh, teaching a, uh, an elective course at the War College? Is that right? The course going on as we speak? Uh, yes, we are. It's a brand new course at the War College that's entitled uh, African-American Soldiers in American Wars. So we've been doing this now. We just had our fourth lesson today, and it's been a phenomenal adventure thus far. We put together a nice syllabus uh, based upon one of our core texts. We've attracted a number of students, and every day we walk in the seminar, we learn about the impact of our history on our soldiers today. And there's a a couple of stories that come out from each individual uh, student from there that even though they may be at the similar demographics, their experiences are very provocative, very intense, and also very unique to themselves. And we're learning a lot about our history by having them look at a past history and relate it to their own context. I can see that. John, do you want to add something there? Go yeah, the, the, I really want to talk, talk about the book we're using um, because it played a huge role in, in helping me understand the history of Black Americans in our military, it was sort of the foundation of our article in Joint Force Quarterly that we're here to talk about today. 
The book is by Gail Buckley. It's called American Patriots, the story of blacks in the military from the revolution to desert storm. And, and it, it's not the perfect text for our course. Ultimately, my hope is that if, if Chuck is willing to put up with me for a couple of years, uh, that we'll end up writing a book together uh, that, that really does what I hope this course does, which integrates sort of the, the military history of Blacks in America with uh, some of the, the diversity, equity, inclusion um, theory and practice that, that Chuck understands far better than I do. But but the, the book, although it's imperfect for our, our purposes, the students are absolutely loving it. Mm. And they are coming into class angry, visibly moved by what they've read the night before. They are learning things they didn't know. They are fired up about it. And and a big part of the class, we've, we've had four sessions so far, but of every class is how are you going to use this energy and this knowledge as we teach these strategic leaders to make America's army better, a better warfighting force that more um, wisely, uh, compassionately, uh, accounts for the experiences, the 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 life, and the 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 strengths that every member of the American military brings to the brings to the fight. Right, Chuck, go ahead. And what we find is that the War College, uh, our students are in their ninth month, so they graduate in four weeks from today. And we had a very uh, intense and in depth discussion in the first twenty minutes of today's class. And after which I paused and asked them, think about your journey thus far. The discussion and conversation you had just now, was, would that have been possible nine months ago? So we're demonstrating to them through the exposure to the curriculum, engagement with their peers, wrestling with some tough issues, uh, they're now becoming much more strategic leaders much, and, and, and thinkers in the process. And we also note that they're at the point where they're willing to share their experiences Whereas before, they probably could not because of the form that they were in. And more importantly, they're listening to others, different mm -hmm. experiences, and putting that in context. And I'm asking them to reflect on their experiences in relation to the experiences of those who have come before them. Mm -hmm. And the question kind of comes up, how much has changed? How much is different? And the point that John has made repeatedly, if it's different and not in the right place, what are you going to do about it? Well, and that gets to that interesting question is that there's no doubt, uh, certainly based on reading your article and reading work on uh, uh, black soldiers in the U.S. Army, there's no doubt of the, the heroism, the contribution of those black soldiers. There has, however, been great doubt about how the Army and the institutions of the United States have treated those soldiers. Um, and so on, on, on the one hand, right, I know the Army can and does uh, present itself as a, uh, a mover Right, some some of that's actually helping to make change. So the army de uh, with the desegregation before the country as a whole, but your article really points out those times where the uh, the army basically either let's say backslid or allowed things to go where the country was. If the country was willing to stay behind, let's say on issues of racial progress, the army was not willing to push them. And would you say, based on your work, um, is this a matter of individual strategic leaders? or other uh, structural factors that have moved the army to, to, to try to be better. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interplay of both, yeah. Ron, without a doubt. And, and so uh, the lesson today was on the First World War, mm -hmm. and, and we did some reading into Black Jack 
Pershing. Uh, General Pershing, the commander of the American Expeditionary Force, uh, earned that nickname, which, as Chuck pointed out, was not exactly uh, the, the words that were used to create a nickname for him as a result of his leadership of African-American troops, black troops, during the uh, Mexican War. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was not an admiring nickname when it was given to him. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in in his command of of the American Expeditionary Force, uh, General Pershing faced the, the question of whether the American Expeditionary Force would employ black soldiers in combat uh, in France, in France's hour of great need. And General Pershing promulgated orders, openly promulgated orders that today read as unbelievably racist, uh, condescending, um, evil, I think, is not too strong a word. He, he uh, begs the French uh, not to interact too closely with the uh, black American soldiers, not, frankly, not to treat them as fellow human beings, uh, despite the fact that they are there risking their lives for the defense of France. And so we had a terrific conversation in class today about how we should feel mm. about General Pershing, who is, as I pointed out, despite the over racism in 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 his letter in his policies was unusual in in being uh, a leader in inclusion mm-hmm. uh, during mm-hmm. the time he lived mm-hmm. right he, he right. actually respected uh, the talents the fighting talents of of black soldiers and and decided to employ them uh, in in combat which many uh, white officers of the time and they were all white officers at that time uh, would not have done. Mm-hmm. And and so Pershing's decision to uh, give black units, they weren't integrated yet, to give uh, um, uh, often white officered black soldiered units uh, to be employed by French units uh, in combat mm-hmm. was a result of um, uh, his, his desire to give them a fair shake and, and to give them the opportunity to succeed, which he believed they would not have had a fair shake if they'd been commanded in American units by American generals. And, and so, like everything involved with race, it's extraordinarily complicated. There are, are, I'd say there are a few heroes, but there are lots and lots and lots of heroes. The black soldiers who fought under these conditions are, are, are all heroes, and, and many of them displayed truly extraordinary valor in combat. Uh, but But Pershing, despite the fact that, that today his actions would be viewed as deplorable, in his time, those, those same actions were in fact progressive and gave black soldiers an opportunity to display their valor, their courage, um, everything uh, that I believe we can ask for an American soldier to do. Hmm. Chuck, you were about to, you wanted to add something to that? Ron, you use the tagline strategic leadership, which is a big war college concept that we deal with repeatedly. As our students are reading through the text from Gil Buckley's book, we're looking at strategic leaders of our history and finding that even though they may be exemplars, we hold them in very high pedestals, they all have feet of clay. Mm. Look at George Washington and his initial development of the Revolutionary Army. Mm precluding enlistment or enrollment of black soldiers in the force. We talk quite a bit about uh, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, John has an expression, what do politics, uh, politicians do best? They politic. So everything that Lincoln went through for his decisions on emancipation and other uh, policy decisions were all about 
agendas and what he could accomplish. Mm -hmm. So even though he's very highly regarded, he did have some flaws. Even this guy, Teddy Roosevelt, who made his bones on San Juan Hill, uh, his appraisal and accolades he provided to the black soldiers only lasted for a while until he was back in the political arena. So we want our students to have an appreciation not only of their own uh, values and principles and goals and how it affects performance in units, but also understanding the political landscape and how some of our senior leaders uh, may have some challenges as they work through some of the issues that we face. I, I can't help, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the interests of, of uh, making sure this conversation is sufficiently war college-y, um, I have to, I, I'm thinking of, uh, of Clausewitz saying that in war, everything is simple, but the simplest things are difficult. Um, mm-hmm. the, the question of whether of what, whether our fellow American citizens who happen to be of a different race are equal to us is very simple. Um, but actually putting that into practice has been very difficult and has been difficult. Uh, and, and yet, and this is where I think the, the interesting thing is, is how do we understand those difficulties and, and, and be honest about the, the, the things that people have said, the things that people have done, the fact that uh, individual leaders have chosen not to advance the cause of equality. How can we talk mm-hmm. about those things today in ways that help us to understand what's going on without simply being accused of dredging up the unpleasant past or without being accused of of, uh, of somehow politicizing the conversation. And I'm, I'm curious if either of you have gotten any pushback based on the article or based on the conversation in, in class um, about trying to bring these issues forward. Have, 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 you, have you faced any resistance? At this point, no resistance from the article. We've gotten a lot of laudatory emails from our colleagues and friends as we try to seed it out into the forest. One of the biggest challenges that we have with our students is that they come in as true believers to our military. War college students, 20 plus years of service, they've been deployed four or five times or going back out in the force, and they want to believe, they have to believe in their mission and their their duty. But as they read through some of the texts, again, our history is about facts, it's about myths, and it's about legends. And we sell our people on legends a lot. And as they're going through the text and reading about policies, uh, actions, behaviors that are inconsistent, a bit of skepticism may turn to cynicism. They may be disheartened initially because what they find is going on behind the scenes. And what we're going to charge them to do is to wrestle with that dissonance and try to create a way forward for them, recognizing that the service is important. I think as we go through the uh, reading through history repeatedly, it reveals things that we hadn't considered before. There will be some assumptions that we had taken for granted. And then when you get something in your face that provides a disconnect with that, we've got to try to resolve it. And as a nature of our service, that resolution is really important for our people, especially our War College graduates as they go back out in the force. And now they, rather than lining up with a particular message or a strategy or a plan, what we want them to do is think and ask questions. Right. Let's get the assumptions out. Let's wrestle with the issues now so you have the best set of information to provide to senior leaders to make the decision. One of the challenges for any institution is institutions may want to get better about things, but they sometimes don't want the rest of the world to watch them trying to get better, or they don't want the, the, the argument is that somehow we will deal with these things behind closed doors. Um, and i I think about, you know, how do we encourage strategic leaders not only to work on these things 
quietly or not only to work on these things um, inside the the operation, but also to let the rest of the country know that that they are aware that these are problems that need to be overcome and that the, that it is a process and that it will take time. Because I think the temptation is to not want to talk about things that are going to make you look bad until you until you're sure you're going to look better. Whereas uh, we should be able to talk about these things while we're going on. Chuck, I'm sorry, I got I go right ahead and then we'll go to John. So for me, for a number of years, I wanted us to be very transparent in our policies and our decisions. And the longer I've been on the faculty, the longer I study policy, I realize that sometimes transparency is not what we want because of the agendas that we're trying to put forth. We're trying to build consensus. You're trying to work around some of the obstacles. And I've leaned more to the term of translucence. Mm. There's something happening behind the screen. There's <laughs> movement. And we're going to hope that's moving in the right direction. I see. And with that hope, we can co-opt other people, adversaries and allies, our partners like John in this endeavor that we have now to provide more information and better realization of who we are, and then use that to maneuver against our adversaries, the folks who are in the way. So holding your cards close to your chest is one way to play. Uh, transparency may sound nice, may have a nice ring to it, but in practice and practical operations, it doesn't probably work uh, as well as we think it should. That's a fair point. John, go ahead. So one of the things that I love about our army is that it has a lessons learned practice, practicum, really. And, and it honestly evaluates itself at um, after action reviews. And there's a culture of after action reviews that was imposed in the wake of Vietnam as the army tried to, to heal itself and get better. And we criticize ourselves brutally after every operation we do. It's part of the culture of the organization. And, and in, in some of my previous work, I've been highly critical of uh, the army's conduct in, in Vietnam of the Army's unpreparedness for the wars we had to fight in the past several decades in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, I've been uh, not as critical, uh, hopefully uh, critical and encouraging of the Army's process of learning or relearning lessons that it, it uh, about how to conduct a very ancient form of war, uh, that, that the lessons that it had forgotten. And, and so what I'm hoping, and I, I come at this, I come at this class, uh, Chuck is in the leadership department. I'm, I'm in the military strategy planning and operations department. And my job title is professor of war fighting studies. And I am coming at this course because I believe that we will be more effective war fighters if we know our history if we understand the differing perspectives different soldiers bring to the table, the different experiences they carry with them in their kit bag. And, and I'm just uh, over and over again struck by the, the fact that when I was a soldier, I was taught to, to, to say out loud, the only color I see is green, which was progress from, from the army of uh, of, of a decade or two before the army I grew up in, where, where black soldiers were excluded from units, where the army was not integrated. But it, it, was, it was also wrong mm -hmm. because different soldiers have different experiences and, 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 and understanding that black soldiers have different 
haircut needs, for goodness sake, something as basic as that. And I know you talked with Beth Bailey about her terrific Indeed. book, An Army of Fire. And and I, I loved her story of, of the Army figuring out during Vietnam that it, it needed to teach all its barbers how to, how to cut black soldiers hair and it literally sent a barber temporary duty to all of the different army installations to conduct train the trainer sessions on cutting black hair and that's it's a little tiny example but it's also huge and and so as i try to help the army better prepare for the wars it's going to have to fight in the future to keep our nation safe to create international peace and security I strongly believe that it needs to be as open as it possibly can about the mistakes it's made in the past in, in its treatment of, of all of its soldiers and dedicate itself publicly to being a place where every American of whatever race, color, creed, uh, religion, picket, gender, right, can, can, can be valued for his or her contributions to this great nation and its defense, well, the as, common defense. As we, as, we, as we move this conversation, move through this conversation, John, you, you said something that, uh, that, that struck me, right, as you're a professor of war fighting studies. And I will, I will say something that will not shock either of you, and I don't think will shock our audience, is there are people who consider themselves to be quite knowledgeable about the military who would like to draw a bright line between preparing people to be warfighters and talking about equality or who will draw bright who will say when the discussions turn to the history of the force or the force thinking about its role in American society and the thinking about the way that we treat our soldiers they will say this is distracting us from our core mission our core mission is to be warfighters and if i understand you correctly john and i'm going to go to you chuck first on this but if i understand you correctly john you're arguing that actually we become better warfighters when we better reflect the higher ideals of our society. And we become better warfighters when we confront these difficult questions. Um, and I, I, I wanted to reinforce that point because I think it's a, it's a point that needs to be reinforced over and over again. Um, but Chuck, you had, your, uh, you had wanted to say something a minute ago, so please go ahead. So John made the case that the Army is a learning organization and we tout ourselves for that. Our colleague, Steve Garrett in the War, in the war College has pushed back on it a few times. And my students, both faculty and student colleagues, have heard me say learning only happens when behavior changes. We may encounter and experience a lot of different lessons over time, but if we don't apply them to new situations, new circumstances, we haven't learned a darn thing. And we have a tendency to regress back to the previous status quo, which is one of the arguments that John has made in our, our article about we have opened the doors to bring in more resources, human resources to consume, but when that necessity goes away, we go back to old policies and regression. So how much has we learned in the process? Not a lot <laughs> in some cases. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And as we move forward to other groups beyond the ethnic and the demographic pieces, uh, what lessons can we take and might apply to the future um, military that we have? That becomes a challenge. And so for me, it's really important to really learn and adapt to uh, provide a better force. Uh, John and I did a conference last Saturday for civil military relations. And one of the items I had on a slide for myself is that diversity, equity, and inclusion is a strategic imperative. If a nation exists to protect its values, secure its people, provide for the general welfare, 
you have to have the people, the human capital, not resources that you can consume, the human capital that you're going to invest in. And what does that look like? People from different perspectives, access to resources, empowered influence, and being including and being, being part of the team that can accomplish good things. For us, the good things is winning wars or promoting peace and being successful with our people in the world community. Very true. John, um, I, uh, I saw you I, from a moment ago, there was something you wanted to say, and I wanted to get to give you a chance to chime in here as we're, we're coming up on the end of this conversation, believe it or not. So, um, oh, well, no, this conversation <laughs> has the, just the, begun, the, Ron, the, an and, and, uh, and, and, and the army needs to have this conversation with itself and every unit in the army needs to have this conversation. And, and Chuck and I hope that our article, our Joint Force Quarterly article, will, will serve as the, the start point for those conversations. I can see it being handed out in, in companies, in battalions, in platoons, and talked about. And, and soldiers can read and learn, and they can read Gail Buckley's book and, and hundreds of other books, and, and they can learn. And they need to learn, because the Army is in a crisis right now. We were 15,000 soldiers below our recruiting goal last year. Looks like we're going to come in about the same this year. The survival of the all-volunteer force, it is no exaggeration to say, is in question at this point. This is the, I believe, the biggest problem, the biggest challenge my West Point classmate Randy George is going to have if he's confirmed to be the next chief of staff of the Army. Uh, I don't envy him that problem. But, but I know that our force is disproportionately people of color. And in, in particular, the subject of, of this particular podcast, uh, this particular article, it's disproportionately black. And, and so if we want the all-volunteer force to survive, we're going to need to provide a place where black soldiers feel valued and welcome. And, and so uh, not only is... is um, not only should should soldiers, leaders, commanders pay attention to this question, they have to if they are going to be effective leaders of combat formations that are and, and logistics formations that are that are disproportionately black. And where those soldiers, as they've demonstrated throughout American history, even before America existed as a country, they will give everything they have and more, more than could ever reasonably be asked of them. And all they're asking in return is a little bit of respect and the opportunity to be valued as fellow Americans. And every single army leader needs to understand their history and needs to understand the contributions they've made, needs to thank them uh, for those contributions, the contributions made by their mothers and fathers and grandfathers, and dedicate themselves each and every day to building an army that's worthy of their sacrifices and their children's sacrifices. Indeed. Over. Indeed. Oh, well, well, as you said, John, right, this conversation isn't over, right? We will, we will have to continue this. But the, uh, the idea that you know, we start with, with articles like yours, with courses like you are offering, with conversations like this one, to get people thinking about this. Um, as, a, as a final question for the both of you, um, uh, John, you, may, you, you hinted at the possibility of a book in the future, but what, what do you both see as the next thing you're going to do to advance this larger project that, of, of encouraging this understanding of and appreciation for um, the role of, of black soldiers in the uh, U.S. Armed Forces. So um, I've I've been um, 
heartened by the reaction we've received so far. We know that this article is being read in important places. Um, I've I volunteered uh, Chuck and myself to give uh, a talk based on it. Uh, we, we gave it at the Civil Military Conference here at the War College last weekend. Have PowerPoint, will travel. Um, but we're, we're also, uh, as I said, um, hoping that this course we're teaching, which has, has resulted in the most engaged students I've seen in my 30 years in classrooms, that this becomes uh, a standard course at the Army War College, that it is uh, um, seen as uh, a career advantageous move to take this course for, for soldiers of all races, colors, and creeds. We hope ultimately to produce a book. The, the ultimate objective, I think, is that every soldier understands, every soldier in our army understands the contributions made by soldiers of all races and creeds and, and religions and genders through the entire history of our nation and, and applauds those contributions and is heartened by them. I'm, I'm struck by uh, not a black soldier, but a Hispanic soldier that we've just named Fortress Hood, uh, where I spent a, a bunch of time growing up as a tank driver. Uh, we've just named Fort Hood, uh, renamed Fort Hood, Fort Cavazos. Um, I was struck um, yesterday. I got to uh, listen to the, the commander of Fort Cavazos uh, talk about some recent uh, war training experiences that he has led his unit through and, and the way he was uh, himself inspired by the way he knew the history of, of the fort he commands already. He, he knew the history of General Cavazos and, and he was using that knowledge already to inspire his troops. I, I think literally the day after the naming ceremony it happened. So I, uh, as, as in everything we see as we started this conversation, I think the Army has an enormous amount to be proud of. I think that it has done more for uh, racial equality than uh, any other large organization in America. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People has done more, uh, but, 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 but the, the, right, that, that's its primary purpose. The primary purpose of the Army is to fight and win our wars. Uh, but to do that, it has needed to be a leader in integration, and it will need to continue to do that if it is going to remain an all-volunteer force and the most capable ground-fighting force in the universe. As I think about the course and this talk, I'm coming to the point of thinking about an expression that John Lewis made, to be or get into good trouble. A part of my career over the past number of years is to discover things as they are, asking why they are, and then trying to move forward to kind of correcting them to where they should be. So finding good trouble. I think Tom Ricks put out a book this past year called Waging a Good War the good war for good principles and values to improve our society. And then for me, uh, the second title of our elective is diversity, equity, and inclusion in practice. Rather than an episodic journey or policy or uh, some checklist we go through pro forma, how does this play out in the day-to-day and lived experiences of our members of our military? Who has ownership of making sure that we have diverse, equitable, and inclusive environment, leaders at all levels. So when we build our teams, we build our formations, we build our institution and profession, uh, my good trouble is to continually challenge people to say, are we doing the right things for the right reasons in the right way? 
So irrespective of your ethnic group, your gender, your orientation, the end of the diversity, equity, and inclusion is a more capable force defending our nation and caring for those who are around us. That is a perfect place to end this conversation for today, at least, and to give an inspiration for those of you who are listening to track down this article in Joint Force Quarterly, which we will link to in the show notes for this program, um, and to keep a lookout for the ultimate for the future works of John Nagel and Chuck Allen. Um, on this question. But I want to say to you both, Chuck and John, thanks a lot for coming on A Better Peace to talk about your work um, and to give us uh, a lot to think about as we think about how to serve this the, the, the army that we work for and the country that we serve. So thanks very much to both of you. Thanks for hosting you, civil-tongued devil. <laughs> thanks for having us here, Ron, and the opportunity. And John, thanks for being a partner and an ally in this great adventure. Amen. Pleasure all mine, sir. Thanks to you. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs and your suggestions for future programs. We're always interested in hearing from you as part of this great conversation about how we can learn together and grow together. Um, and so please take a moment to subscribe to A Better Peace because I defy you to tell me after listening to this conversation why you would not want to subscribe to A Better Peace. And after you have subscribed to A Better Peace, please take a moment to rate and review this podcast so that other people can find us too, so we can continue to grow this community. This conversation is on pause for now, but we will be back again for another conversation. And so until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.